Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. It being a beginning-of-the-year show, I usually, it's been a tradition of mine in the seven years that I've hosted this show, to do a best and worst of list for 2020. However, even though that show is great, it's great to reflect on the best movies of the year as well as bash the worst movies of the year, I'm not going to be doing that kind of show this year for a couple of reasons. First and foremost has been the year 2020 has been with COVID and not only that, but also COVID shutting down several movie theaters for quite some time. So the only options many of us have had, and this is better than nothing, I I, uh, assure you, has been streaming movies. And that's great, but I only subscribe to one streaming service throughout the entire year, Netflix. And while towards the end of the year, I also purchased subscriptions to Hulu, Disney Plus, and HBO Max, I felt like I didn't see enough films to merit or to justify a best and worst of list. I could probably go for the best movies of the year or the worst movies of the year that I've seen, but still, and this is the second part, I don't feel like... The movies I've seen are an accurate representation of the movies that have been out there. For example, I still have not to this moment seen the movie Tenet, which was the Christopher Nolan film starring John David Washington and several other actors that was supposed to be the movie that brought people back into the theaters, which I respect to a certain degree. However, the pandemic got out of control again. And Tenet was a box office failure. And I stayed the hell away from movie theaters. And I'm still going to stay the hell away from movie theaters until I get a vaccine. But there are far more worthy people who are going to get a vaccine first. So I would probably say the worst part of last year was last year. It was just a freaking terrible year. So I think that basically... Talking about the worst films of the year does not justify how bad the the movie or how bad the year was overall. And talking about the best films of the year is one of those things that doesn't really seem to get to the heart of how bad this year was. We couldn't even escape the bad parts of last year through movies. That's how I see it. So for that reason, I'm not going to do a best and worst of in terms of movies for this year. If you are looking forward to that episode, uh, the few of you who do look forward to such episodes, I do apologize. But my guess is that things are going to be better by the end of 2021. And in January of 2022, where I wholly anticipate still doing this show... I will give you a best and worst of list, but as it stands right now, I don't feel like I've seen enough movies to accurately represent how bad last year was, or rather how 
I, I didn't, well, let me just put it this way. I don't feel like I saw enough movies to justify what were, what the best were and what the worst were. And plus I've only seen them on one streaming platform. So that's my take on why I won't do that kind of show. So instead, this show will be what it usually is, which is where I review the latest move, the latest films that I've seen, particularly on streaming, because again, I'm staying away from movie theaters. And while I've heard of other people who have, who have gone to the movies, this holiday season to see films like wonder woman, 1984, which I still haven't seen. Again, I'm staying away, and as much as it hurts me to say this, I think you guys should stay away as well until this pandemic has subsided, which it shows no signs of subsiding right now. So I hope I've made my point. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. I have four brand new movies to review for you for this show. The first one I'm going to be reviewing for you is Charming, which is a 2018 Canadian-American computer-animated musical comedy film that, despite being animated and finished, I presume, in 2018, it did not actually debut on streaming until January 8th, 2021 on Netflix, as far as I know. Netflix does regard this film as a Netflix original, and it is a film that focuses or wants to focus on the Prince Charming, whose first name is actually Philippe. And Prince Charming is who you might expect if Prince Charming were the hero of a movie, not the villain like in Shrek 2 and 3. And this is actually a film that is not made by DreamWorks, but the poster proudly totes that this is from one of the producers of Shrek. And that is the exact same sort of pitch that the movie Happily Never After from 2005 also had. Now, the movie Happily Never After is a computer animated film that was also about fairy tale creatures, um, heroes and villains. And the reason that I bring up that movie happily never after, which I don't blame you if you've never seen it is because happily never after was kind of the same as Shrek. It wasn't the exact same plot with an ogre and everything, but it did play around with this notion of happily ever after being unrealistic and maybe not the goal for which a hero in a movie should stride. (coughs) Excuse me. Before Shrek took on this kind of theme in its movies, the theme was also explored in a more adult context in the Broadway musical Into the Woods, which was later made into a decent movie musical by Walt Disney. It wasn't the best Broadway musical adaptation I've seen, but it certainly wasn't the worst either. But my point is, 
The movie Charming, which I'm about to review more in depth, does not exactly stray from what Into the Woods and Shrek, of Tr- and Shrek excuse me, have tried to do. But in this movie, Prince Charming is the same prince who uh, puts the glass slipper on Cinderella and also awakens Snow White and Sleeping Beauty by the same kiss. And initially, you're not really on board with Prince Charming because he it promised to marry three different princesses and is also the object of virtually every woman's affection who lay, lays eyes on him, except for one particular woman who is, in the computer graphics sense, the most attractive woman in this movie. But the movie doesn't want you exactly to think that. Her name is Lenore, and she is voiced by Demi Lovato. The voice of Prince Philippe Charming, by the way, is voiced by Wilmer uh, Valderrama, who is not exactly a household name, but you probably know him best for playing Fez, the foreign exchange student, on the hit sitcom That 70s Show in the late 90s and early aughts. Demi Lovato doesn't really need too much of an introduction, so I won't give her a lot. But eventually, the Prince Philippe Charming is kind of resting on his talents as a womanizer, causing his father, who's the king of this magical fairyland, to put him on a quest, and a dangerous quest, I I might add, basically to make him more of a man and less of a pampered prince that he is. And eventually he meets up with a thief by the name of Lenore, again, the most attractive woman in this animated movie, and together they go on this quest to put a little bit more figure of meat on Philippe Charming's bones. And Lenore, because she's on the run from the the guards of this fairy tale land, disguises herself as a man and calls herself Lenny, and the two embark on this journey together to seek faraway lands and also encounter various dangers. And from there, the movie gets very, very predictable. Not in the sense of it's going through the whole happily ever after isn't everything trope that was in Into the Woods and Shrek and several other knockoffs of both that Broadway musical and that set of movies, respectively. But it's the whole kind of thing where the two of them, Lenore and Philippe, are fighting initially and then eventually they fall in love they have a falling out and you could probably fill in the rest here i did actually like the animation for a a movie that had no backing from the likes of disney disney pixar dreamworks sony animation or any of those other major studios charming did have some well charming animation to it it was very good for a movie of its budget which reportedly is less than $10 million. But the story was very predictable. I liked the character of Lenore. As a matter of fact, I wish that the movie had been focused more on her being a thief and meeting up with Prince Charming than on Prince Charming himself. Because for one thing, 
the the design on Prince Charming in this movie, I didn't think was very good. In other words, I didn't see Prince Charming as somebody who could sweep a woman off her feet, but then again, I'm a guy, so what do I know? I didn't think he was particularly attractive, but I also had seen that kind of pampered prince archetype before. And yes, I've also seen the independent woman, particularly in uh, a fairy tale story. I've seen that before as well, but the difference is that I actually did like what Demi Lovato brought to the character of Lenore. I also liked the fact that she was a thief. I thought one of the best scenes in this movie is where Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, and Snow White go into a cake shop to pick out the cakes for their wedding, and Lenore disguises herself as the chef and begins to, unbeknownst to these princesses, even though they're looking right at each other, begins to rob the princesses of their tiaras and their jewelry. And while I didn't think that part was particularly realistic, considering that at one point she's robbing Cinderella of her jewelry while Sleeping Beauty and Snow White are looking right at Cinderella, I still thought it was very funny. And certainly I, I liked that con artist part of the character, Lenore. I didn't exactly buy into the depictions of Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, and Snow White in this film. The three of them acted like Kardashians. They acted even more pampered than Prince Charming. They acted like Valley Girls. And Cinderella in particular mentions that her wicked stepmother made her become a maid for her and her stepsisters. But she doesn't act like somebody who has any experience cleaning a castle or even her own room. And there's also a a tired joke about Sleeping Beauty being a narcoleptic, but if she slept for a hundred years under a spell, you would think she'd be awake all the time. I kind of wish that the movie would have played upon that. And Snow White didn't really have anything particularly distinctive. It was just sort of that picking on the particulars of fairy tales, particularly those written by the Brothers Grimm, that Disney glossed over previously, but that's even been seen before in several recent Disney films, such as Ralph Breaks the Internet. So Charming is not a bad film, but Charming gets my rating of a strikeout because as good as this animation is and as good as the character Lenore is, I also like the fact that Lenore was of Latina descent, which you don't normally see uh, many women of color in movie fairy tales. But even in spite of that, I thought the story was so, so predictable. There were ways that the two characters, Philippe and Lenore, got out of situations that felt like deus ex machinas. They felt so forced and so contrived. And the music, I thought, was way too Generation Z pop. It felt like music that was written by Taylor Swift or Ariana Grande in in the sense that it felt like music that Generation Z girls would definitely download in a heartbeat, but anybody older than Generation Z probably wouldn't think it's anything special. The only exception was when the singer-songwriter Sia played the voice of this oracle 
And there's a song she sings that you can definitely tell it's Sia, but it's also one of the better songs in Charming. But the rest of the music is not all that great, and it just sounds like too upbeat Christian pop that doesn't particularly fit in a movie like this. In addition to the fact that only one character sings and the rest of the songs are background music that almost seems to appeal to kids and maybe even tweens, but not anybody else. Back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Midnight Sky. This is a new enough film, which was released on Netflix on December 11th, 2020, but I didn't actually get to review it until now. It is a big budget film reportedly costing $100 million that... If it hadn't been for the pandemic, this movie would have most certainly been released in theaters. It is directed by George Clooney and stars George Clooney and is based on the 2016 novel Good Morning Midnight, written by Lily Brooks Dalton. It stars Clooney as a scientist who must venture through the Arctic Circle to ward off a returning spaceship following a global catastrophe. And this returning spaceship has several astronauts on it, including Felicity, uh, those played by Felicity Jones, who is, I think, the captain of the ship. She plays a, an astronaut named Sully. There's also her husband, I presume, either her husband or her boyfriend, uh, Adewol, who's played by David Oyelowo, great actor there. There's also Mitchell, voiced by Kyle Chandler. Sanchez, voiced by... Voiced by played by uh, Damien Beshear, and Maya, uh, played by Tiffany Boone. They all have been in space for an indeterminate amount of time, and while they've been in space, Earth has basically been in peril. So much peril, in fact, that most of Earth's inhabitants have left it to find habitable planets somewhere in the universe, maybe in the Milky Way if they are lucky. And the only one that's left behind is scientist Augustine Lofthouse, who is near death. And he is in a safe place in the Arctic. At least he's in a habitable place. But his end is coming soon. The reason he stays behind is for two reasons, or the the reasons he stay behind are two reasons. One, because he's near death. And two, also to warn the incoming spacecraft where the characters played by Felicity Jones, David Oyelowo, and the others are occupying. It takes place in the not-too-distant future in 2049, which hopefully will not be how the Earth is in 2049. And if it is, hopefully we'll find some habitable planets on which to migrate. At, at least that's our hope. And you actually find out that George Clooney's character, um, Augustine Lofthouse, is not 
the only one left behind on Earth. There's also a young girl who is presumably a deaf mute that stays behind with her. And one of the biggest selling points of the Midnight Sky, and definitely where its $100 million budget went, was not only to many of the talented actors in this cast, but also to a very ornate and articulate spacecraft on which the astronauts reside. The spacecraft is very gorgeous to look at, both inside and out. And I did identify and feel for the astronauts, particularly the one played by uh, Tiffany Boone in this movie, the one named Maya. She certainly is one of the less experienced astronauts, and she's one of the ones with whom you or many should identify the most. I can't exactly say that I identified with George Clooney's character or the, or especially the girl that he ends up taking in as his, his own when just because nobody else is around. Her name is Iris and she's played by a young actress by the name of Cowlin Springall. And while she doesn't speak, that name is definitely not American, at least not that I know of. And Cowlin Springall is actually making her her screen debut here. According to IMDb, this is her only credit. She has not been in any other movies, TV shows, voices in video games, and she hasn't even been interviewed for a TV talk show. This is her first feature, period. Her first time on screen. Will we be seeing more of her? I don't exactly know. I actually found that as this film came to an end and the climax happened, there were a lot of questions that this movie didn't really answer and also fates that were left unknown that I don't think it would have been good in the narrative sense to leave these unknown. So I did like The Midnight Sky. I didn't exactly love it. I liked its science fiction elements. In fact, there were elements of this movie that reminded me a lot of The Martian, the 2015 film starring Matt Damon, which was also based on a book. In fact, I think that was the first movie that was ever based on a book that was not released to publishers and and at least initially printed as a book. It was the first one to be, it was the first movie to be based on a book that, that debuted online rather than in print. The Midnight Sky, I don't think was the the same kind of deal, but it also dealt with a hero that was on an uninhabitable planet and was reaching out to brave astronauts in space, either to come rescue him or for him to warn them not to come down. But the ending of this film was not nearly as satisfying as the Martian. It's not as if the the ending was too happy or too tragic. I could have taken one of those, but it did feel like the very end of the film, the movie gave up without giving too much away because one of the rules of words on film that I have is no spoilers. I won't tell you how this film ended, but the ending was 
sort of one where the film gave up and it left you with way too many questions that I think weren't particularly appropriate for this kind of movie. But The Midnight Sky, I thought, was a decent science fiction movie. I just would have expected better from George Clooney. And George Clooney is a great actor. There's no doubt about that. But his directorial efforts have been hit or miss. He debuted in 2002 as a director with Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, which was fantastic. He also directed, three years later, Good Night and Good Luck, which was also great. And he directed Leatherheads, which was a sports comedy, which did get middling reviews, but I didn't think it was that bad. Also, I th- he directed The Ides of March, which I didn't actually see. Then he directed uh, Monuments Men, which I thought was a good... Uh, sort of light, dirty dozen film that I think worked on several levels. But the movie he directed before The Midnight Sky, not counting the Catch-22 TV miniseries that he directed last year, was Suburbicon, which is a movie starring Matt Damon, Julianne Moore, and several other good actors, which, despite being co-written by Joel, Joel and Ethan Cohen, wasn't that great of a film. And The Midnight Sky was better than Suburbicon, but I still give it my rating of a checkout. I do think it's worth seeing for the acting performances in here, particularly by George Clooney, Felicity Jones, David Oyelowo, and Tiffany Boone. And the movie was good for about 75% of it, but the ending just didn't do it for me. It just felt like the screenwriter, maybe not necessarily... Uh, Lily Brooks Dalton, who wrote the book upon which this movie is based, Good Morning Midnight, um, wrote in her book, I don't know, I haven't read Good Morning Midnight, but I'd like to now that I've seen The Midnight Sky. But I do feel like the, the characters could have gone a different way and just some closure with these characters would have been better than the ending we ultimately received for The Midnight Sky. I do think it's serviceable. I think it would have looked great on the big screen, but it's not nearly as good a science fiction or space epic as Ad Astra, the movie that came out two years ago starring Brad Pitt, or the movie I mentioned before, The Martian starring Matt Damon. I think The Midnight Sky had a lot more space to cover, and it didn't quite succeed in doing that when all was said and done.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is We Can Be Heroes. This is the latest film from director and writer Robert Rodriguez, and this is his fifth children's film. Robert Rodriguez was interestingly known before he came out with Spy Kids for directing many hard R-rated movies like El Mariachi, Desperado, From Dusk Till Dawn, and several others. He was also known, I think he has a very good reputation for working on a shoestring budget. He made El Mariachi back in 1992 for less than $30,000. And even in the 90s, a movie that cost $10 million to make was considered a modestly budget film, budgeted film. So a movie like El Mariachi was a low, 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 low budget film. Really low. But it debuted at Sundance in 1992 alongside Quentin Tarantino's debut as a director, uh, Reservoir Dogs. And Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino became really good friends after that and have worked together on several projects. But Robert Rodriguez made a very interesting foray into children's movies in 2001 with Spy Kids, which I thought was a good, solid children's film. But Spy Kids 2 and 3, which came out, I didn't think were as good. I haven't seen his other film, Shark Boy and Lava Girl, but from what I hear, it's not very good. And that was the film debut of Taylor Lautner before he became known for his six-pack and for being in the Twilight films. But unlike Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart, Taylor Lautner seems to have shaken off the stigma of the Twilight films the least. But the reason I bring up Shark Boy and Lava Girl is not only because it was directed by and written by Robert Rodriguez, but also the movie We Can Be Heroes is an unofficial sequel, probably more like a spinoff to Shark Boy and Lava Girl. And in this film, Shark Boy and Lava Girl make appearances as adults, but I don't think they're by the same actors. For instance, the guy who plays Shark Boy does not take off his helmet, and it's very doubtful that he is played by Taylor Lautner, although it probably would not have been expensive to get him. But in any event, We Could Be Heroes is actually not so much about superheroes like Shark Boy and Lava Girl. And there actually are some very creative superheroes in this movie, not just your typical Superman uh, prototype, although he's featured in this film as well. Not the official Superman, but a guy who's like Superman, who wears a cape and has super strength and can fly, that sort of thing. But this is actually focused more on the children of superheroes. And when aliens invader, excuse me, when alien invaders kidnap Earth superheroes, the su- the children of these superheroes must team up and learn to work together if they want to save their parents and the world. So the children of these superheroes uh, were introduced to one of them, whose name is. Missy Moreno, who is the daughter of one of these superheroes, who appears to, unlike the other children of superheroes we meet, does not seem to have any particular superpowers. 
And Missy Moreno, by the way, is played by a young actress by the name of Yaya Goslin, who we might see in other uh, other f- films. She's a decent actress. You also have other um, children here who have various uh, superpowers. Some we've seen in comic books and superhero movies before. Others we haven't. There's one kid named Noodles who's played by Lion Daniels who is able to stretch and contort his body similar to Reed, Mr. Fantastic Richards in the Fantastic Four. There's another kid who's in a wheelchair whose name is Wheels, and he's played by Andy Walken. And even though Andy Walken is good in this film and probably one of the better child actors amongst the roster of child actors we have in this film, I do find it funny that he has a name that was jokingly given from Wolverine to Dr. Um, uh, Xavier in the original X-Men movie. He looks at uh, Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. At one point, learns the names Storm and Beast. And then he looks at Patrick Stewart in a wheelchair. He says, what's your name, Wheels? But as it turns out, Wheels is not paraplegic. He could have been, but he's not for some odd reason. But he is able to get out of his wheelchair um, later on in the film to show that his legs are actually super strength, not that he's paralyzed, but it can only be in certain instances. There's also a character named Ojo who is limitedly um, psychic and is able to draw predictions of the future on her iPad. She's played by a cute young actress named Holla Finley. There's also Acapella, who's played by Lotus Blossom, which cannot be her real name. But Acapella, I thought, was one of the more unique um, heroes in the sense that she can move things with her singing voice. She can sing really high into high soprano octave. She can also sing very low bass. I thought that was very clever. There's a kid named Slow-Mo who, as you might expect, uh, runs in slow motion and actually is one of the hindrances of the of the team of kids. He's played by Dylan Henry Lau. There's also Facemaker who can shapeshift his face. This is a, a superhero uh, superpower we've seen before. He's played by Andrew Diaz. There's a brother and sister team. Um, one kid is Rewind. He can turn back time five to 10 seconds again, limitedly. There's another name fast forward who is a girl who can do the opposite of what rewind does. That doesn't really need an explanation. And they're played by Isaiah Russell Bailey and Akira Akbar. Also two very good, um, actors. And there's also a kid named Wildcard, whose superpower very much like, um, Missy Moreno is unknown. And there's also Guppy, who's played by Vivian Lyra Blair, who is able to turn herself into water. Some of these superpowers we've seen before, others we haven't, but the whole theme about kids being, um, or the, the children of superheroes, we've seen before in movies like Sky High, for instance. And Sky High was a film that did moderately well at the box office when it was released, but it actually earned more of a following when it was released to DVD and later streaming. And that was from a few writers of The Simpsons. And initially, when I first saw the film, I thought it was okay, but as I've thought back on it, it, it actually 
has come to me to be somewhat uh, cleverer than I initially gave it credit for being. I can't say the same about this film. Will I change my mind about it later? Maybe, but based on the fact that I've seen Sky High before, I probably wouldn't say that this movie was particularly original. But one of the things is, it's not predictable. I'll give it that. But there are a few too many twists and turns, and I won't give them away. But I will say that these kids are at one point under surveillance by a woman by the name of Ms. Granada, who's played by Priyanka Chopra Jonas, who is not supposed to be alluring or exotic, but she's Priyanka Chopra. So, damn, she looks good in this film. I just got to say, I'm very, very jealous of Nick Jonas. Or I would be if it weren't for uh, my girlfriend, whom I love very much. (laughs) Love you, babe. But in any event, I did think that it was a decent adventure film. It did bring back Shark Boy and Lava Girl, which I don't think anyone particularly asked to bring back. But I thought Robert Rodriguez did pretty well with this film. I wouldn't say it's as original as the original Spy Kids. It's not as random as the Adventures of Shark Boy and Lava Girl, but I did like certain things about it. I but again. The the special effects were good. I thought some of the acting, particularly by the kids, was something worth seeing uh, by people of all ages. And I do think it did have a positive message about being who you are and also playing to your strengths, even if your strengths don't, at first, seem like exceptional superpowers. So there are things that are worth seeing in We Can Be Heroes, I'm giving it my rating of a checkout because I do think thematically this is something we've seen before in better films like Sky High, like I mentioned, and The Incredibles amongst other films. And I also didn't like the fact that the movie is called We Can Be Heroes, but it should have been called something that pertained to being the child of a superhero, you know, something related to that rather than being named after a David Bowie song, which by the way, they do use in this film. I don't know if David Bowie were alive today, if he would approve of the way his song was used in this film. I don't necessarily think knowing David Bowie, like I do that he would necessarily be against it. But again, it seemed kind of cheap to, put this song in this movie and have various characters sing it at various points. I think the movie could have saved itself millions of dollars in royalties, kept that song out and instead named this movie, something pertaining to the children of superheroes. But I didn't think it was that bad. I Robert Rodriguez will always be a filmmaking hero of mine, just based on how he got into the movie industry without any help. And I do commend him for making films in his native Texas, which are not as far as I know, hindered or, um, maliated by the Hollywood system. But sometimes I think that his movie, his movies could use a little bit more direction away from certain cliches. Despite that, I still liked we could be heroes 
and I give it my rating of a checkout. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Ratones Paranoicos, the band that rocked Argentina. That's actually the English name that's given to the Netflix original documentary. That is about the band Ratones Paranoicos, who formed in 1983 in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and were a huge deal in the South American rock scene. They're not particularly well-known, or at least not known to me, um, in uh, the United States and Canada, or at least not to English-speaking people, but it details, this documentary does, the rise, fall, and reunion of the band who's considered the greatest rock and roll group in South America. And they're based, by the way, in Argentina. The documentary itself, I don't think is particularly original, or at least the the way it's presented isn't. But I actually watched this film and want to check out Ratones Paranoicos because even though I'm not fluent in Spanish, I know some words in Spanish, but I'm not fluent, I'm more intermediate. I still think that this band genuinely rocks. They were together from 1983 to 2011, and when they broke up, apparently this made headline news in Argentina. And they reunited actually in 2017, um, auspiciously, and when they reunited, they apparently attracted a huge crowd. They consist of uh, Juanse Gutierrez uh, on vocals and guitar, uh, Pablo Madito Memi on bass, Paul Scarcofago Cano on guitar, and Ruben Roy Quiroga on drums. And there was actually one past member named uh, Fabian von Quintiero, who's mentioned in this film very briefly. But my problem with this film, this this documentary, which is called, again, uh, Ratones Paranoicos, the band that rocked Argentina, is that aside from the music, which is great, by the way, and certainly influenced by the Rolling Stones, they um, the documentary itself didn't really strike me as unique. They'd tell the story about how the band got interested in music, and then they'd cut to them performing live. They'd talk about how the band was coping with their rise in fame, and then they'd cut to a live performance. They'd talk about infighting with the band, then they'd cut to a live performance. They'd talk about one or more of the band members' uh, drug use, and then they'd cut to a live performance. They'd talk about the band breaking up, then they'd cut to a live performance, 
and I'm not going to tell you exactly how, how the film goes. I, I, maybe I spoiled it for you and words on film has a no spoiler rule, but I will tell you that this film felt less like a unique documentary and more like an episode of behind the music. And when I had cable and I watched VH1, I loved behind the music. Even if it was a band that I didn't like or wasn't familiar with, I still like to watch behind the music, but at the same time, I think all the behind the music episodes about hair metal bands were exactly the same. These guys who started out as friends created a rock and roll band for fun. And then their success became a roller coaster ride of excess. And when I say that, I can guarantee you that the guy who did the narration for all the behind the music episodes, whose name escapes me, used that exact same term, the roller coaster ride of excess. And then they hit rock bottom. Another thing that the behind the music uh, um, narrator said constantly. And then, especially with hair bands from the 80s, there was usually always a reunion where the four of them got back together and whatever new music they released was usually nothing particularly rememberable or it just flat out sucked. The Behind the Music episode would tell you that, but it just didn't really do anything. This movie um, didn't really do anything for me because I thought the rise and fall of this band, every single part of it was predictable. And also, while you hear members of the band being interviewed, you don't actually see them be interviewed. You don't see them on camera talking about their time on the road or their time making music. You only hear about them uh, talking about it. And the archive footage, which is plentiful, does not seem to be in sync with the, the tale of this band. I mean, it probably would have been less predictable or rather more formulaic if they had actually hired a narrator to tell the story of this band. Then it would have been exactly like a behind the music episode. But other than the fact that these guys were influenced by the Rolling Stones and happened to share the same producer, Andrew Lug Oldman, Oldham, excuse me, let me say that name again, Andrew Lug Oldham as a producer, and there was a quote in the beginning from Keith Richards about how the Rolling Stones performed in Argentina and they found that Argentinians were even bigger, um, uh, better audiences for uh, rock music than Americans were, probably especially this day and age when rock music isn't as popular as it used to be. I still thought the documentary was very predictable. The Archive footage didn't really do it for me. It seemed kind of standard. The concert footage seemed to be more bookends to each chapter rather than something unique that should have been uh, shown. And while the band Ratones Paranoicos rocks, and I actually will check out their discography after seeing this documentary, The documentary itself, Ratones Paranoicos, the band that rocks Argentina, or the band that rocked Argentina, is a strikeout because it is so very predictable in the sense of its storyline. It also had missed opportunities to make itself a very unique 
rockumentary. I've seen some very unique rockumentaries like Anvil, The Last Waltz, Stop Making Sense, and some of those were concert films, others were um, documentaries about a band. But I feel like Anvil, the story of Anvil, was a lot better of a documentary to follow or at least to learn from, especially with other documentary filmmakers who might be covering music, particularly rock music. That That's a documentary that's worth seeing. The Woodstock documentary would have been a good um, influence, as well as Stephanie Fierce's The Decline of Western Civilization, particularly parts one and two that deal with rock music of the 70s and 80s. But Ratones Paranoicos, the band that rocks Argentina, is nothing more than a slightly longer Behind the Music episode. And it's really too bad because Ratones Paranoicos themselves really rock. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, and now that I've reviewed all the films I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into a spoken word preview of movies that are going to be premiering streaming on various streaming platforms. I'll start with Netflix, since that's where I get most of my movies, and frankly, where most good, uh, most new movies... I was going to say good movies, forget I said that, where most new movies uh, premiere these days. Eventually, I think that Hulu, HBO Max, and Disney Plus, amongst other streaming services, will catch up, Uh, particularly Disney Plus, because they can definitely afford to create more of their own original content and certainly own enough fictional characters to do so. But anyway, there are several films of note that are coming out between... Monday, January 11th, and Friday, January 15th, 2021. And one of them is a documentary that's called Crack, Cocaine, Corruption, and Conspiracy. It's a documentary that's premiering on Netflix. I know exactly what it's about, but I can't exactly tell you very much more than that. I don't know if it's from the point of view of the people who work at the DEA, the drug manufacturers, the drug dealers, or all three, or a combination of two out of the three. But it definitely has an intriguing name to it, and I will let you know what I think if I review it for you next week. There is one film that is making its appearance on Netflix, but is not uh, a Netflix original. It's a 2011 film called The Intouchables, not The Untouchables, The Intouchables. This is a movie that is a French film starring... Uh, Francois Cluzet or Cluzet and Omar Sy. And it's about a rich man who, after he becomes a quadriplegic from a paragliding accident, he hires a young man from the projects to be his caregiver. I haven't seen this film, but I've seen the American remake starring Brian Cranston and Kevin Hart, which was very funny. It was better than I expected it would be, particularly for a film that was released in January of 2018. 
I would imagine that the original would be better, but I'm not going to review it for next week's show because the film is 10 years old now, but I will eventually see it, and you can see it too if you'd like. On Wednesday, January 13th, there is a docuseries that's premiering. Again, docuseries, well, miniseries are fair game for this show. I don't review TV series. I review primarily movies, but I have reviewed miniseries before. I might squeeze this movie in as an exception. The movie is called Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer. This gives me goosebumps because this is a docuseries about the hunt for Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker who in Los Angeles in the 80s was a Satanist who went out and killed people at random. And he puts the city of Los Angeles in the same kind of paranoid state that David Berkowitz puts New York City in in the 70s. I'm not saying I look up to Richard Ramirez. No, Richard Ramirez was a terrible, terrible man. But the hunt for him, you bet I'm going to be on board with that. So that's premiering on Wednesday, January 13th. I will see it. Will I let you know what I think on next week's show? Yeah, probably. It seems like one of those docuseries that will have me glued to my sofa. So anyway, uh, on Friday, January 15th, I'm looking for films that are Netflix originals. There are a couple of series that are going to be premiering or in their final series. There, there isn't very much for the month of January, to be honest with you, because January, just like it was when movie theaters were open, is usually a slow time for movies to come out. There are either movies that are uh, Oscar-worthy, um, which means they're usually great, or they're the other movies, which are guaranteed to be terrible, and movie companies just put them out just to say, Okay, let's hope this isn't a complete flop. There's one movie that's called Double Dad, a.k.a. Pai and Dobro. I'm not sure what language that is. I want to say Portuguese, but I don't exactly know. I will see right now if I can find any information on it. And it looks like I can. So Double Dad is a movie that is directed by Chris Amato, And Chris Amato has a name that sounds Italian. I'm not going to assume that he is, though. And the movie does not have a plot listed on IMDb right now, but it is premiering on Netflix on January 15th, so I recommend you... Well, I don't recommend you check it out, but I'll let you know if I see it, what I think on next week's show. There is a film that's premiering on Netflix on January 15th that's called Outside the Wire. It sounds a little bit like a prison film, but this is a film that stars Anthony Mackie, and it is a not-too-distant-future post-apocalyptic film about a drone pilot sent into a war zone who finds himself, and a drone pilot meaning somebody who flies drones via remote control, but this drone pilot, not in a drone himself, finds himself paired with a top-secret android officer on a mission to stop a nuclear attack. This sounds incredible, and this sounds like a movie that I will see for next week's show, and I will let you know exactly what I think. I like Anthony Mackie. I've liked him ever since 
I saw him in the movie She Hate Me, which was a Spike Lee joint that did not get the distribution that later movies of his like Black Klansman got. And it's not a perfect film, but I actually enjoyed it in kind of a weird way. But I've been seeing Anthony Mackie ever since, particularly in better movies like Half Nelson and some of the Avengers films in which he's co-starred. But I'll let you know what I think about that movie on next week's show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.